Uh, welcome to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand and international independent media and politics podcast. You're here with Kyle. Hey, that's me. That's him, Philip. Hi, that's me. I've been talking already, and we have Paul, longtime friend, recent time kind of co-host. Hey, hey Paul. Everyone. Yeah, so we're here today to talk about some stuff, some smaller things, and then probably a bit on the ERP later. But we'll start off by just kind of noting some of the recent things that have been in the media for the last week as we want to do in the weekends. Uh, Kyle, do you want to talk about Business New Zealand and how much you love them? Yeah, I think that they are pathetic losers. Um, oh, and speak of, speak of mine, Kyle. It's just, so for people who haven't been following along, um, earlier in the week, the... CEO, is he CEO or has he got some other weird title? Yeah, yeah. Um, of New Zealand, uh, Kirk Hope started spreading what, what, what has just been shown to be an absolute lie. Um, in, in media circles, some of them just published it without even fact checking it. Uh, well done, big clap to, to the journalists and reporters and editors who let that one get through. Um, just blatant disinformation about New Zealand's fair pay agreements being on a list of the worst um, investigations of labor law uh, for the UN's uh, International Labor Organization. Uh, Within like seconds um, of some of the stories going up, people were like, what the fuck is this? This is just absolutely incorrect. This is, they put a different name on the list. Uh, This is a, a list of, things that might be investigated. Uh, And alongside that, the reason that this is even on the list is because Business New Zealand nominated it. Yeah. So what they've done is they've gone and slipped a note to to the organization saying, oh, we think this is bad. So it's on this this list to be shortlisted. So, you know, they do due diligence. Fantastic. Great. and then made a whole bunch of claims about it already occurring, that, that New Zealand is already going to be sued about this. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah to be fair to Kirk Hope, New Zealand is on a list um, of the worst international labour breaches because it's a fictional list that they wrote and put the headline on, right? So that list doesn't exist. So if it, if it were to exist in, in the brains of Business New Zealand, then New Zealand is on that list because they put us there. It's, it's just obscene. And... You know, it's credit, I guess, to some of the other uh, media organizations that immediately started publishing these uh, fact checks, but it should never have got into the public sphere to start with. And it's just indicative of the PR release to journalist pipeline in this country that all you need is a spokesperson and a semi-legitimate front and you get your your lies in front of half a million people. It's obscene. And and set the agenda, essentially, uh, about fair pay agreements for the entire week because everyone's busy going, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, it's what we've complained about for years, right? Is that like if if you're an organization like Business New Zealand, there's virtually no editing process because people know who you're you cutting are. Out. Like you have you're a cutting out. Yeah, th- these are the people that, you know, the um, radio shows and all that kind of stuff get on as well as the as the spokespeople every time there's a you know um, an issue like this that 
comes up or fair pay agreements or something like that around workers' rights. There'll always be the business NZ rep or whatever. And through COVID, we saw it as well when, whenever the business community um, was like up in arms about res- more restrictions or whatever. Uh, these are the types of people that the media would just, you know, platform constantly um, without really challenging them. You know, it happens on, on radio and TV as well, right? Like the, the questions and response to these people um, often aren't really rigorous. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is just a continuation of like, a fear mongering campaign by Business New Zealand that ever since fair pay agreements kind of came into the um, you know came into the scene like they have been railing against it the whole time um, hopefully they fail but um, yeah it remains to be seen I guess a bit of money on a kind of public campaign mm. um, and then I was glad to see more recently that Auckland Council is potentially going to evaluate their membership because the councils are memberships of Business New Zealand yeah that was Actually, is one of the really good things to come out of this is a, a little bit more visibility in the um, public sphere around who actually pays for Business New Zealand to exist uh, because it is a bunch of notable businesses and or public service entities. Um, you mentioned Auckland Council. I think Hamilton City Council is on there as well, a bunch of other um, councils or CCOs, so council-controlled organisations, um, really large uh, corporates like uh, a bunch of banks are, are on there too. Um, and just a lot of a lot of businesses that I'd argue are actually kind of for free pay agreements or at least wouldn't say they're against it in public. You know, like there are like ones which purport to be pushing for living wage that are on this list. It's incredible to me that I guess they just kind of like, oh, yeah, Business New Zealand. Okay, we should probably be a member of that because it's a New Zealand business organization or something and just signed away $20,000. I I believe that's what the membership fees are. Um, So good to see that um, Phil Goff and Auckland Council are asking questions about what Business New Zealand is up to here. Um, I'm not holding my breath to see them actually pull membership. They should. They absolutely should because... Business New Zealand is working directly against the interests of the employees of these companies. Um, and especially for public services, you know, that's pretty egregious. Uh, and alongside that, Business New Zealand has now, like, I think for the third time this week, doubled down on what it's saying. Like, every time something gets like, hey, but this is a lie. They're like, oh, no, but this is this. Um, and that's happened multiple times of the week. They're not resiling from um, the disinformation that they're spreading. Uh if I'm Phil Goff, I'm just unilaterally pulling Auckland Council out. It's a joke. Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly wouldn't um, hold out hope for Phil Goff to do the right thing and face a pushback from business for the first time in his career. But, um, you know, they've made the right kind of noises in terms of a few councillors now saying um, the, the, the membership period comes up for them on, I think, June 20th or, thir- or 30th. They're saying there's a, a date coming up where they have yeah, to read it's finish, the yeah. again if they're going to pay another $20,000 to remain a member of Business New Zealand, which is a lot of money. And, you know, we here at 1 or 200 are deeply concerned about getting bang for buck for ratepayers. And we think it's a, a, a real problem that they don't really get much kind of feedback, right? What do they, what do they get from membership of this organization? Uh, um, fuck all. Yeah, but it, is, it, it seems like a crazy... They get, yeah. They get, they get pulled into the, the muck, essentially. Um, I, yeah, like... Business New Zealand has made all its its large, powerful business members look like fucking idiots. You all look like dupes. I'm sorry. Um, and 
you should you should get out while you still can. Uh, alongside that, um, that kind of behaviour of Business New Zealand, we've got Simon Bridges moving into the Auckland Chamber of Commerce uh, role. Like, that's that's an immediate balance um, to any power that Business New Zealand has. Like that, that's an, that's a huge huge move. Um, it's probably one of the most powerful business roles in the country. Um, he's certainly going to have more influence than Kirk Hope does. Um, you, you ha- you're going to have to work with the uh, Chamber of Commerce. Just jettison Business New Zealand now. They're, they're not worth it. They're going, to, they're going to cause you problems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And obviously on his, um, on his leaving his seat, we have this uh, by-election in the Tauranga uh, seat coming up. Um, yeah, which is obviously going to be a, a cakewalk for national um there, there have been kind of overly i think cautious commentators trying to pretend that there'll be some kind of contest obviously there won't uh, it's just how much is national going to win by um I, I off the top of my head maybe 25 percent. i think it'll just be a cakewalk um but yeah so we'll have this new guy uh sam uffendale is that right mm-hmm. some you know the most the most national mp background you can imagine like international finance uh, small like agribusiness, whatever, farmer, performer, um, you know, pay, paints his face like a farmer whilst doing like short trading derivatives or something, I assume, and then investigates uh, fraud for a bank or some some bullshit. Basically, if you, you know, if you synthesized the, uh, the main, the main points of, of like agreement between all the different CVs of all the current National Party MPs and just built like a future MP, it would be this this guy's actually, um, in terms of his background, better than most other national MPs. Like he, he is a stronger candidate than Christopher Luxon. Well, as um, Christopher Luxon on that said, basis, as, as Christopher Luxon said, he brings a note of diversity to the caucus due to being intelligent and well educated. Um, <laughs> which, yeah, you know, a, a good a good leadership leadership note to, to start out on, I guess. Uh, but who knows, right? We don't know anything about how he'll perform as a, as a politician. Politician is a very different job from, uh, from banker or farmer or anything else he's done. There's no kind of record of public service there. Um, and he could easily say something embarrassing over the next month or so that would um, mean that he only won by like 10% instead of 20 or 30, like he probably will. Yeah, I, think, I, th- I don't think he will, because um, I, I don't think he needs to. Um, and if you've been working at a high level in, in some of the areas he has, He'll at least know how to keep his mouth shut. Um, but yeah, as you said, we'll see. I I think it's, a, you, you said some commentators are already kind of hedging their bets on this. But at the same time, we've seen maybe six or seven articles profiling uh, Sam Alfendale and nothing for any of the other candidates. You know, they are, they are mentioned. I'm looking at a, an article right now. It is um, the Electoral Commission names Tauranga by-election candidates. Um, it says 12 candidates are seeking to replace um, former national leader Simon Bridges. Uh, it then lists three, um, the Labour Act um, and the anti-mandate candidates. Um, and on a separate line altogether, um, gives like a little Sam Uffendall profile and then doesn't mention anyone else. Yeah, but that's probably about right. But that's the first time I've seen like... Uh, the names of some of these other people in print, you know, about Tauranga. Like, it's, 
they they are hedging their bets to get it on the record that like oh maybe i maybe i'm wrong um so they can hark back to it but for them it, it already is fair complete like they they've they've put their their eggs in a basket uh and it's very clear from the other reporting that is that is going on yeah i mean it's going to be interesting to see like how much national win by um because you know uh there's the, the, there's a labor sitting labor cabinet minister that's that's up against him the political context um leading into an election year national have taken the lead in the polls uh it's a very national heavy seat so it's going to be a good like it's going to be a test for them as well right like they're going to want to make a statement um and you know greens aren't standing um to party maori aren't standing so so free free ride for labor <laughs> well, at, at least that should be reasons for them to um you know, put up more of a fight than otherwise might be expected, right? Um, and so, I, yeah, it's 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 going to be interesting. Um, considering, like overall, it's it's a pretty boring like um, by-election. It's shaping up to be a pretty boring by-election. No Winston Peters as well, um, <clears throat> who we've neglected to mention so far, um, but he decided not to stand after He's a coward. speculation. Sorry, he's a coward. He didn't see anything in it for him. He didn't think he could win. He didn't. Exactly. Like, if he'd even thought he had a chance, like, he could even come close to winning, he would have run. Yeah, um, I think that's right. I mean, the thing is about Wilson is that he would have been guaranteed he's a media, right? Even if he was going to lose. So he, he's obviously thought that even that wasn't wasn't worth it, you know? Yeah. Um, they're, they're still sunk in the polls around, like, one and a half, two percent 2%. So, you know, if he got smashed in the by-election, it might just reinforce that you know, New Zealand first is a spent force and he doesn't want that, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He would have think... to come second probably to be worth running, right? And he wouldn't have, like, mm. he wouldn't have beat um, Jan Taniti up against Sam Luffendale. And that would have been really embarrassing after being the MP for Tauranga for, what, 80, 1984 until 2005? Mm. Um, a recent Deputy Prime Minister. Yeah, huge, you know, huge profile, one of the biggest profiles in the country easily for a politician and then just getting absolutely crushed by like a nobody and a relatively recent kind of yeah he's already been crushed by nobody once before yeah. in Tauranga like I'm not sure he wants to do it again exactly exactly but I just wanted to uh briefly remind people about uh Bob Clarkson the, the one uh that's the other nobody before yeah speaking of nobodies before Bridges came in so after after Winston Peters when he was already leader of New Zealand First, and there was the kind of New Zealand First versus uh, national intra-conservative kind of conflict going on. The guy who beat uh, Winston Peters in 2005 for Tauranga was like an awful misogynist, racist, um, said that uh, Muslims should go back to Islam or Iraq, uh, had all these like incredible, just openly bigoted clangers all the time for three years, and then was one of the kind of you know, Don Brash era of openly just like repugnantly racist, homophobic people who uh, John Key kind of like cleared out of the National Party um, and his like brutal reformation of them into something that could win an election after um, uh, post Don Brash um, and his kind of, you know, re reimagining of the National Party to look forwards and all that kind of grossness. But I just think it's interesting that that kind of like brutality internally in a party is something that we see on the right quite a bit, right? Whenever, whenever a new leader takes over on the right, they always kind of clear house, um, reform parties in their image as something that they want essentially, because 
you know, they brought in Simon Bridges, who's a uh, conservative, like absolutely still anti-gay rights, anti, um, you know, religions that are weird and scary to him as a like pretty conservative Christian, but won't say that kind of stuff in public in a, in a way that will get him in trouble in the same way as uh, Bill Clarkson did. So it's like, I think just telling on some level that they're, they're very good at that kind of brutal internal machinations where the left doesn't seem to be in New Zealand. The interesting thing for me is going to be how hard Labour fights this. Um, if I'm if I'm Labour, I throw something at this. I, I make them run for it um, in the hope that they slip up and you just deliver a an early, like, really crushing blow to national um, outside of 2023. Um, and there, there are ways for this to happen. Um, for example, ACT's candidate uh, is called Cameron Luxton, C. Luxton. Uh, for all we know, we, we don't know how politically literate people are in, um, in Tauranga. Maybe not much. Uh, if they think they're voting for the leader of the National Party, they might just do it. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, they, this person could pick up a bunch of votes um, that are meant to go to Sam Muffindale. I don't know. Um, likewise, you've got uh, the anti-mandate campaigner, uh, Sue Gray, running. Uh, knowing that Tauranga previously elected Bob Clarkson, Maybe they'll just vote for some other horrible, like bigoted demagogue. I there there are there are angles here that Labour could exploit. They could force um, the national candidate to try and be wrestling with both the act uh, and some of the more extreme elements that are running in Tauranga and come out through the middle. Um, it, would, it would need an a, an incredible ground game that really need to lift the the level of voting for for a by election which people think is already um, uh, decided. Uh, that's probably going to be the number one risk to national is that people don't get out to vote. Um, so yeah, I like Labour. If you're listening, go hard on this. Make 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 them work for it maybe just to wrap up on this topic but um just looking at the numbers and probably what they're banking on to follow up from what you're saying Carl is um Gentany did actually get well reasonably close I guess to, to Bridges um in 2020 so Bridges got 42 and a half percent um Gentany got 38 and a half but obviously that's in the context of a, a historic um general election win for for Labour uh and she still didn't win but then there's you know a couple of percent for the Greens and and so on that um maybe they're hoping will, you know, boost them. But then if you look back to 2017, uh, where National were sort of polling around what they're polling now, I guess, sort of early 40s or whatever, Simon Bridges won by 30 points. Yeah. So uh, 30 percentage points. So, I mean, that's, yeah, the, and that, that's with New Zealand first as well, um, getting 12% of the vote. So, yeah. So I think that's the comparison. Like the 2017 election, I think is going to be reasonably similar. Like Simon Bridges had a really big, um, reputation at that point, obviously, mm. and was much more popular, presumably, than this new guy. But even even considering those factors, like I find it hard to imagine that uh, National will win by less than twenty percent, um, no matter how hard Labour work from this point. Like they would have had to do that groundwork a lot earlier, I reckon. Um, and if the demagogue's going to get um, some percentage, which they probably will, because there's a lot of reactionaries, um, I don't think it'll be Sue Gray. I think it'll be that guy from the new NNP, the New Nation Party, who used to be a councillor um and has a really like local localist kind of government anti-government kind of uh you know conspiracy also but in a in a more cloaked kind of way 
um, perspective. So I think he, he could pick up a couple of percent. I could imagine that from like disgruntled uh, Tauranga locals. But I don't think Sue Gray is going to get anywhere. She's she's a big profile, but she doesn't really have a base. Like she'll fly in, fly out, get like 0.5. Talking about uh, anti-government conspiracies, uh, this this week the emissions reduction plan um, came out. Is that a segue? Does that work? Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's really a segue, <laughs> but you know, run with it. Uh, Paul, do you want to take us through? Um, I mean, I was I was not happy about this. Uh, I don't think a lot of people who, you know, actually want um, action on climate change are. Um, but a lot of the Greens uh, seem to be pretty happy about it, whether that's because James Shaw um, is the Minister for Climate and the architect of, of uh, this piece of legislation um, and we're kind of rallying around him. Um, I don't know. But just on paper, it seems kind of bad. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think it's worthwhile just looking at some of the kind of background and, and we're probably going to go into a bit more detail um, when we talk about the budget um, in a show coming up where we can kind of go into some of the actual policies that are in the ERP. But I think it's um, it's important to focus on like these these sort of high level aspects um, today. But yeah, I mean, if we, if we look at the background, what, what this is trying to do is uh, it's, it's a suite of um, government policies related to reducing emissions. Um, there are some that uh, uh, have already been announced, um, some that are ongoing, some new. Um, and what it's trying to do is it's building off the emissions budgets, which uh, were also announced uh, recently and went through the went through Parliament. Um, and so what those are doing is uh, setting a level of emissions that we need to, uh, well, not exceed essentially over the next uh, 10 years or 15 years, however long it is. Uh, and then those are based on the targets in the Zero Carbon Act, which, which was passed back in 2018, 19. Um, so this is a long kind of piece of work, a framework, I guess, for what we're going to do to reduce emissions. And I guess this is kind of the frustration um, with this process that, like, you know, you, you get the sense from, like, environmental NGOs uh, and people who, who know a lot about this kind of stuff that it's been a lot of this you know, setting up the framework, setting the targets, setting the budgets, you know, thinking about like what we need to, what we need to do and not actually implementing the policies that, that we need to get on with. Um, and, and also I think it's important to remember that when those targets were set in the Zero Carbon Act and when the, when the budgets were uh, set, there was, you know, it, it wasn't uniformly accepted that that was what was going to do the job for us, you know, like there was debate about are these targets enough um, to get us to, uh, you know, um, 1.5 degrees above 1990 levels? Um, and yeah, there's there's like genuine uh, concern that it wasn't. And same same with the budgets. And actually, um, Mark Dalder has done some great reporting for Newsroom that, you know, has has shown that there is actually, yeah, a lot of doubt as, as to whether these policies that it's that's announced in the emissions, emissions reduction plan and the level. Um, of emissions budgets that have been set are going to yeah, be, be sufficient. And, and the, the policies, are they going to actually be enough to even get us to those budgets? So, so there's questions about it. Um, and, and I think there's a, a couple more points. Like there's, there's a couple of concerning sort of broad things in there. So um, Bernard Hickey did a really great rundown. So, so a, a couple of things as to 
the kind of structure, I guess, of the emissions reduction plan. Um, and, it, and it follows on from some of Graham Robertson's uh, pre-budget speeches as well. So all the money for these uh, projects comes from something called the Climate, Climate Emergency Response Fund. Uh, and that's four and a half billion dollars. And what that is, is recycled revenues from the emissions trading scheme. So you've got companies, they're buying uh, carbon credits to be able to emit um, carbon um, and, and you know, make emissions to run their businesses and so on. And the money that they spend to buy those carbon credits market scheme is going to the government and then that's getting recycled into these um, uh, initiatives to reduce emissions, right? But the problem there is that those um, carbon credits that businesses are buying, they need to reduce over time, right? And so the revenues are going to reduce over time. And the idea is that, okay, the price of emissions is going to, you know, the, the price of those credits is going to go up. But there's a problem there where you're kind of relying on, you know, a limited and, you know, potentially reducing amount of revenue over time to fund you know, our transition to a low carbon future, which we need to like, it needs to be at the forefront. It's, it's not just something that we can spend a bit of money on now and like solve forever, you know? Um, like this is something that is, we, we're gonna, it's gonna need to be at the center of like everything we think about uh, when we do our economic planning going forward. Um, and, and also just to wrap up on this point is that um, Graham Robertson's pre-budget speech alluded to, well, I, actually, I think he said it quite, um, definitively that debt, government debt won't fund climate projects, that it's just going to be money from this emissions reduction plan. So it's essentially, I can't remember, but Bernard Hickey described it quite well in his piece, but balanced budget, I guess, of carbon emissions, you know, where, where you're getting this revenue in and, and you're just spending that, you're not borrowing um, for those purposes. Um, so yeah, some some kind of like concerning things, I think about the, the thinking that's that's gone into this. Um, and obviously, in terms of the detail, like it really lacks some of those big projects uh, that we need to actually um, reduce emissions and make a big dent on that. Yeah, one of the major concerns for me is around that funding mechanism is that, you know, whenever we're talking about climate stuff, we mention things like just transition, but that's like, that's beyond just single sectors, that's beyond just. Um, okay, we're shutting down a, a coal plant. That's a total rework of parts of the economy that needs new infrastructure. And some of that infrastructure is going to be coming during a time when we've got that closing lid on payments into the scheme. And what do you do in that case? You just, oh, sorry, we just don't do it. Um, that money is going to have to come from somewhere. If you're working into legislation that you're not allowed to do that, it's like legislatively impossible to either take money out of other parts of the budget or to borrow. Like, what happens if there's a crisis? Sorry, it's, a, it's illegal. Like, it, we're, yeah. we're just not going to. It's, yeah, it's, it's very, like, it's very uh, austerity thinking, right? It's privileging um, specific kind of regulatory constraints that you've self-imposed over the physical existential scientific reality of like the extent of change required for climate change it's it's looking at that and being like in the face of that the first thing i will do is limit the amount that i spend on this like that's the framework that these people are thinking in right and it, and like that the whole kayfabe seems to be around getting business on board uh and and getting like 
light national voters to come over to Labour or whatever, but we've entirely cut agriculture out of the ERP, out of the emissions reduction plan as part of that, alongside the fact that even when we go, even when Robertson and Shaw go to this extent to, to make space for agribusiness interests, you're not getting those votes, bro. Like, that's not, that's not how it works. Yeah, the, the, um, the political aspects are really interesting here because I also saw that um, Christopher Luxon's response uh, was calling it something like um, corporate welfare. I think it was the term that he used. One of the policies that he was um, referencing there was like providing subsidies to businesses to get off coal boilers and things like that, right? And he was like pretty pretty strong in terms of, you know, businesses actually needing to fund those things themselves and they've got like lots of resources and then they need to be the ones that do, are doing it. Um, and, you know, he got uh, a bit um, panned by you know, people on Twitter or whatever for being a hypocrite or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely disingenuous. It doesn't mean it's yeah, the sure. argument's wrong. Yeah, but yeah. but I think it's a pretty clever, like, piece of political positioning. You know, when the government's trying to say, you know, Pluto's going to pay, um, which is also hypocritical because, you know, like you were mentioning, Kyle, the agriculture sector um, don't actually pay into the emissions trading scheme. And, and take getting, money out. Yeah, they're getting a massive chunk of this money to, um, which is going towards a new centre for agricultural climate action research or something or other. And in this center, it's actually remains to be seen what they're going to exactly be doing and, and how, um, I guess, how influenced by the agriculture sector they're going to be, right? And, and if they're influenced by the likes of Federated Farmers and, you know, all those lobbyists, then they're going to be uh, focusing on what are the technological fixes like methane vaccines and like genetically engineered grass and shit like that that's not going to, you know, solve anything and it's, it's also like 50 years away like, down the road and yeah um so yeah i think back to the point about christopher luxon is that you know and, and it comes back to what you're talking about around labor and the greens you know trying to ingratiate themselves with the agriculture sector um you know christopher luxon knows that the, those sectors are going to vote for him regardless and actually there'll be people in the corporate sector that like what he's saying they'd be like yeah. yeah you know this company over here might not get money for a coal boiler but in terms of the logic yeah the government shouldn't actually be subsidizing businesses the market should sort this out etc cetera, etc cetera. um so it's not necessarily an anti-business message even though it might like on the face of it appear that way mm. um so yeah quite clever and i think it's sort of concerning for labor it's gonna be interesting to see how that like, I mean, you know, the irony is that National haven't actually put up any alternative. They don't need to, though. Yeah, no, exactly. They don't, they don't at this stage. Um, but and, and when it comes to them actually doing it, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll look at it and be like, well, I see, this is yeah, adequate. But. I think um, that particular line by Luxon was heralding in the new form of national attacks on Labour. Uh, and we've seen that continue this week uh, post-budget. Post um, with national, like across the board, um, attacking labor for not giving enough to, to people who are struggling. You know, with this, this $350, every single national MP has been saying, why is that, that going to like beneficiaries? You know, they, they don't give a shit. You know, like obviously they're hypocrites and a lot of like um, people in the labor fandom are, are going to go after them for being hypocrites. Oh, but you wouldn't do anything either. It doesn't matter. 
the, the whole purpose of this, and we're going to see it accelerate to the end of the year, um, is to destabilize labor, is to make them look like hypocrites, is to make them look out of touch because governments in New Zealand lose. Na national don't have to put up policy. They don't have to be uh, anything but disingenuous. They just have to make people think that labor isn't doing right for them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, it, further to your point about uh, a kind of a new, you know, what, what this means for a new national brand. Um, and, and I think it is really kind of delicate positioning on climate, you know, like they voted, they supported the emissions budgets, but they were, uh, you know, I can't remember exactly how Luxon described it, but it was a sort of a wait and see approach as to what's going to be in the emissions reduction plan, right? And, the, and they'll, they seem to be being very careful about where they stand on climate. Um, and they sort of were through the key era as well, but I, th I think they seem to be a, li a little bit less kind of brazen uh, now on the topic and, and a bit more understanding as to the where it, where it is in the zeitgeist, I guess. Um, but I wanted to, for something a little bit more lighthearted, um, wanted to bring up this uh, other story that came up in response to the emissions reduction plan, which I thought was uh, hilarious and it brought me lots of joy. But um, the Ministry for the Environment uh, sort of published a page on the website, um, which was clearly <laughs> clearly a mistake, just a placeholder, but I think it summed up some things up quite nicely where, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read off of it, but it's, it said, here are some of the actions currently being taken by New Zealand to mitigate against climate change. And there's a bullet pointed list, and then the list is blah, 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 link, blah, 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 link, and so on. And so, yeah, obviously it's a placeholder for something, but kind of resonates with the um, the blah, blah, blah speech, obviously that um, Greta. Yeah, Greta Thunberg did a couple of years ago now. And um, yeah, but very, very embarrassing for them, but you know, some, some, good, some good humor for us. Yeah, very good for the rest of us. Um, yeah, yeah, look, like I think, it, there's, a, there's a lot of specifics in this, right? And it's important to look through them and kind of evaluate what you think is good and what you think is not good enough. But I think you need to, like, we need to, as, as people who, like, purport to have a more kind of forward-thinking view, we need to, like, zoom out at, the, at moments like this when, when targets get really specific and think not just in kind of specific terms about what material outcomes should look like, but, like, you know, the mode of thinking that's going to get us there. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about corporate welfare as like quote unquote good or quote unquote bad, like that's that's very kind of 1990s economic thinking, right? If we're talking about like a just transition across the economy, then there's gonna have to be what is essentially corporate welfare in exchange for a reorganization of the way that the state is connected to businesses, right? Like we should be funding very uh, ugly, like dirty parts of the economy. We should be giving them money, but that should be in exchange for a reorganization of the way that those sectors work. like saying saying that like the the other sneaky kind of almost retro kind of move from Luxon is is that kind of corporate welfare as a as a single kind of unitary thing like I don't think um I don't think Judith Collins would have used that line um because she seems to have and probably not even bridges like they had sort of evolved in the economic thinking more towards uh not necessarily like UK Tories style conservatism but at least away from the like NZI hardline uh, free marketeer kind of sloganeering, right? Whereas Luxon is very clearly that kind of like 1990s economic thinker, like he's very unevolved in the way that he thinks about the relationship between the state and businesses. 
um, and quite like free market radical in a lot of ways. So it's going to be interesting, like Scott Simpson, the climate change spokesperson, is obviously a lot closer to that kind of um, Collins model in terms of, um, you know, being more willing to negotiate on those, those kind of things. But Luxon slips back into really like, I guess, uh, primordial neoliberalism, like very boring kind of stayed lines, right? Mm. He fucking employed the guy from NZI as a policy guy in his office, right? So like that's how his, his mind kind of works. So it's going to be really interesting to see um, if how they can propose something that's different from what ACT proposes whilst pretending to like fill a different niche. Like it is, it, like Paul was saying before, it's quite smart for him to, to run that line because it is both like obviously woefully inadequate to the task at hand, but also kind of divides the, the capitalist vote in maybe quite a useful way. Like if the, if the more kind of evolved business owner spectrum can think like the, you know, Ponsonby medium business consultant clique can think, uh, I, you know, I like the goals, but we need to do it in a, in a smarter, more, te- more targeted, technocratic kind of way. If those people are voting national, that, you know, those people wouldn't vote for ACT anyway, but they might vote for Labour. And then there'll be the, the big business, agribusness scions. Maybe, maybe Nats can afford to lose 5% of those people to ACT in exchange for a more like urban liberal, uh, you know, veneer. So it'll be interesting to see how that spectrum changes. Like the last election, despite the enormous wave to labor, remember was like historically divided between rural and urban. Like that, that wave was all an urban wave. There were very, very few people in the regions, um, especially like small towns in particular, still very few of those people were voting labor um, or greens even, even more so, right? Those people were all still voting uh, at national, even New Zealand first, like little, little parties. So yeah, he needs to expand out of that out of that base and maybe like recognizing that some of those rural losses to act might be longer term could work from yeah just to pick up on something you said earlier on which i think is really important to emphasize so the you know what what the submissions reduction plan means kind of as a big picture view because like like you said there's going to be good things in there i mean it's it is you know people aren't lying when they say that it's the biggest kind of climate investment that the government's ever made in new zealand you know of course like we haven't actually had anything like this before. Um, and, you know, that, that is the kind of line from the government, right? Like this is a new kind of, it's a, it's a massive investment into climate projects. We're really focused on climate change. And, you know, on the face of it, it, it appears that way. But like you say, Philip, the, the kind of devil's in the detail about what, what the specific initiatives are. Um, but, and of course, there are going to be things in there that um, are good. But I think as, as the left, we, we need to, uh, analyze these projects um, a bit differently from how we would uh, like a center-right government, right? Like we know we know what their project is and what they're going to be doing. We need to be looking at the center-left and, you know, Labour and the Greens in particular and be going, okay, is this like, is this really delivering a kind of future trajectory that we need and, and involving those broader, like, you know, shaping the economy in a kind of just transition way, like you're talking about involving other sectors of the economy and not just kind of pigeonholing like climate projects into, you know, a bit for EVs and a bit for coal boilers and a bit for cycleways. And then we're kind of, you know, we're done, right? Um, yeah, so I think it's really incumbent on us to have a, have a good critical analysis of what, the, what this means as a broader project 
like heading into the future and, and is it actually going to deliver the kind of economy that you know we can sort of safely run within environmental limits and we'll get into that um on a midweek cast next week paul um you'll be probably the the expert involved on that one we'll have Jan on as well hopefully and maybe a couple of other people uh doing a, a breakdown of of the budget um including some of those uh, climate related areas i think that's a good place to leave it though um we are coming up to time thank you so much for listening once again to one of 200 uh if you've enjoyed this independent critical analysis of new zealand's political current events uh, give us a share uh, give us five stars leave a comment we're slowly moving philip's least favorite uh review down the list uh he's giving me the thumbs up right now in response to that find us at 10200.nz for other articles we've had a few up there recently otherwise have a great rest of your sunday or week and we'll catch you next time Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? Your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism. Oh, you don't hate Mondays, no.